Hello, this is Nick Clegg, and thank you very much for listening to this, my new podcast. Uh, You might be surprised about my first guest in the first episode. It's Nigel Farage, and I think you could hardly find two people who disagree with each other more on pretty well everything than me and Nigel Farage. But much though I disagree with him, I still think it's important to be able to talk to people you disagree with, however strongly you disagree with them. And the first part of the podcast, it's Nigel Farage talking about his life. It's not really me cross-questioning him. For those who want to hear us locking horns more on the issues of the day, that comes later in the podcast. I hope you find it interesting and enjoyable. Angry feelings are disagreeable. I'm putting you on warning. Just who the hell do you think you people are? They will be met with fire and fury. They make you act and look as well as feel unhappy. Our very way of life look at the fear. are under threats from extremists. I am your voice. This is Anger Management with Nick Clegg. And the recurrent theme in this uh, series of podcasts is that rage is the opposite of reason. Discuss. My personal view is that too much rage and too little reason is not good uh, for the world. But uh, this is the kind of thing I want to discuss with my guests. And today I have a stellar guest who, uh, how can I put this, is extremely well qualified to talk about the uh, politics of, uh, of anger, Nigel Farage, Nigel, good morning. Good morning. And you're right, I'm very well qualified to talk about rage <laughs> and anger and violence too. Oh, right. Because I've been subjected to more of it than any figure in modern British political history. Yes, that's. I think that's a claim. I mean, as, as, well, we'll come on to that actually, because um, if from completely opposite directions, we have caused a fair amount of controversy mm-hmm. from our critics. And um, but, but by the way, I just thought I'd say one thing which amused me immensely. When I, I read that when we, um, before our second TV duel in 2000, let's gloss over for a minute, we won that one. <laughs> but um, you, I, was, I read that you didn't drink f- in preparation for that. You didn't drink for four, four whole days. You went walking on the North Downs <laughs> and I even had a few more morning swims. I'm assuming you haven't gone through this terrible preparation this time round. No, no, I really no. haven't, I You've promise walked you. Off the street, right? <laughs> no, no, what it's right. Well, it was very interesting, isn't it? You know, as you know, when you're doing those big set piece mm. debates, oh, yeah. and particularly now with TV cameras, with HD, the heat... Yeah. On those platforms. So they all said, when we did the first debate... Yes, you sweated too much. ...that I was very sweaty. And, of course, yes. I come straight for the Westminster yes. arms, is the yes. truth. Yes. Um, so and I, I waved my arms too much, apparently. I decided that wasn't going to happen <laughs> yeah, yeah, again. Right. So, well, you, don't, you can wave your arms to your heart's content. I'll, I'll start with something which might be counterintuitive, which is um, a counterintuitive to both of us and maybe people listening as well, which is that I actually think we have a lot more in common than many people might... Imagine. I mean, we're, we're both educated at public schools in London. We both spent most of our careers in politics. We were both MEPs at the same time. I remember once having a drink while you were there in the Aviateur pub. Oh, that in, nightclub. In, in, yes. yeah, yeah. God, that was fun, wasn't We've it? We've both led kind of insurgent parties, I guess, in, in different ways. We both have European uh, wives. We both have children who you know, speak more than one language. And yet, of course, our worldviews are very different. So uh, what I'd like to know is how did you develop the views that you have done during the course of your life? Well, you've missed something. Okay. You've missed something quite major uh, that does differentiate us in a big, big way, which is I left school, uh, bypassed university... Because, the city. because there was this big boom going on. This was when? This was, uh, in... This was in 82 that I did this. And so I spent 20 years um, working in the commodities business, not a banker, but you know, buying and selling copper, aluminium, stuff like that. Um, and I and the last nine years of that, running my own company, and I think that has had a very major impact on my political views because you know when I left school, 
yeah, sure, I was very interested in politics. I thought the Thatcher Revolution was incredibly exciting. Painful, too, but incredibly exciting. Um, but it was really... I mean, I was never even going to stand for, stand for local councillor. I had no intentions of being involved in current affairs. But it was my experience in business, more than anything else, that got me And that politics. ran in the family, if I understand it. So your dad was in the city, your brother, oh, yeah. brother was in the city, yeah, so you're quite my, a sort of city family. Yeah, right? oh, my grandfather was 50 years on the stock exchange. So, so yeah, we'd been stockbrokers. Um, I went a, a slightly different route doing commodities. And one of the things I and liked... And brother, he was also... Brother was in commodities too. And one of the things I loved about commodities is it was a truly global market. The, the, it, there was total free trade uh, in commodities, in metals. Oh, other than if you imported aluminium into the European Union, then, of course, there was a 7% tariff. So I, very early on, took the view that we had a really very fortunate, uh, lucky place in the world. Not only did we speak English... We had a great merchanting tradition that had gone back mm. for centuries, uh, but also being stuck there in the middle of the world's time zone. So, you know, in the morning, you spoke to the Australians. And by lunchtime, you're talking to the, Ameri- to, to mm. the Americans. And so I kind of took the view that what we were doing on the London Metal Exchange was actually a model mm. for what the rest of the country well, ought to be if doing. You, if, I, if I may, I, I want to come back to that, because I, anyway, I want to come back to that kind of idea of a buccaneering, sort of swashbuckling global Britain. But just on, the, on you for, for a minute, yeah. before we get into the sort of heavier duty sort of stuff later um so but if that was where you were clearly very happy and doing well what so what what where, when was the switch flicked when did you was there a damacy moment was there, oh, so for instance if i if i look yeah. back at my time in you know because i actually didn't I took a different trajectory to you but i wasn't actually wildly interested in politics at university and after i left uh, or certainly not party politics the, the collapse of the berlin wall in 89 had a huge impact on me in the way i could have saw the world was there a moment was there a person i've read somewhere you you uh, you did you give you know Paul a lift in your car? Oh, that, well, that was in the nineties. That much later. Okay, that, no, no. That, so, so that was in the nineties, and we'll, and, and, we'll know, come to that later. We'll yeah. come to that because it's quite a fun little yeah. story. But I, during the late nineteen eighties, I began to be concerned about the European single market. Uh, that act went through Parliament in nineteen eighty six. The, the single European Act. Yeah. yeah, and I began to think, what the blazes is going on here? Because yeah, sure, when the phone rang, it could be Paris, it could be Frankfurt. But actually, in the game I was in, it was more likely to be Singapore or Santiago. So I, was, I began to become concerned. I then saw a whole lot of legislation coming into the marketplace, making it more expensive and more difficult to do business. And I asked myself the question, where is all this coming from? And I realised, actually, it was a series of European directives. Now, that of itself didn't have to be a bad thing. But I began to question, why is the establishment in Britain so hell-bent on a European destiny for us. And if you remember, in the late 80s, there was a very big debate. Should we or should we not join the exchange rate mechanism? Should we effectively peg sterling? Well, they say against the basket of currencies, but really the Deutschmark. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the truth. And I was very, very vociferous in thinking that was an absolutely mad idea. Uh, I felt the UK economy more services-orientated, the German economy more manufacturing different stages of the economic cycle. And it was October 1990. It was about 5.30 in the evening. I'd had a miserable day. I'd lost money. I was in a very bad mood. I was in the pub. And, um, and some Because in those days, you didn't have screens everywhere and the mobile phone was really in its infancy. And somebody ran in and said, it's just been announced, we're joining the exchange rate mechanism. Uh, well, I won't tell you what I said uh, initially, but it's pretty Anglo-Saxon. It's made of with F. And, yeah, and that, with F. Yeah. yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. And yeah. the next morning, 
I'm travelling up on the train from from, Ken, from, from Ken. A, oh, that which is where you living, you've always lived, right? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm still living in the same village in which right. I was born, and mm-hmm. that's that gives me a very good grounding actually in this in, in mm-hmm. a because you know if I walk into the local pub on a Sunday or go to church, no one bats an eyelid. No one asks me questions. Though heaven knows when you're over there. B- you seem, b- to, be, you b- seem b- to be leading a globe-trotting life. Well, yeah, but I still, I, but, you but I still get home occasionally. Anyway. I still get home occasionally. Anyway, I was travelling up the next morning on train, and I read that the Tory party supported ERM, the Lib right. Dem supported ERM, the Labour party supported right. ERM, the CBI supported ERM, the TUC supported ERM, and every single newspaper editorial. One or two asked questions, mm. but basically there was a total consensus. So, so your experience in the commodities market... Uh, setting aside for a minute whether that's yep. a wholly representative window on the rest of the British economy. But anyway, let's, uh, I don't want to sort of rile you too much at this stage. But the, uh, but the ERM, that's very interesting. So the ERM yeah. really, really was a and, big catalyst and, for you. Yeah, and I saw this consensus yeah. saying that it was the right thing mm-hmm. to do. And I sat there thinking, no, I, don't, I just, I, I don't buy this. And your attitudes towards the Conservative Party were interesting. Because I have to say to you, I, of course, mm. saw in a completely different context how much you successfully totally freaked out the uh, high command of the Conservative Party. Oh, I mean, yes. we'll come to that in a minute. I, I think in many ways, when the history books are written, I mean, you might dispute this, but I think your greatest achievement, oddly enough, was well before the referendum was held, was by basically bullying and harrying the Conservative Party so much they decided to hold the referendum. But anyway, we'll come to that in a second. Yeah. But you're, but were you a natural Conservative? I mean, you're, you come from quite a Conservative yeah. sort of, yeah. sort I mean, of I, I, background, right? Do you know, I thought I was a natural Conservative. But was it at that moment that you thought, no, I don't want to have any more truck with them? But or? I realised, actually, I'm, never, I'm not a Conservative at all. If, if I go back through history... And I think, you know, which side of the argument would I have been on the Corn Laws? Which side of the argument would I have been on appeasement? Which side of the argument would I have been on a whole host of things? In fact, there are only very short periods of time when I would naturally have found myself at home in the landowning Conservative Party, right, right. Uh, you know. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, to be honest with you, and, and this is a word that perhaps has lost its meaning. But I would describe, really describe myself as more of a radical liberal in many ways. Oh, heavens above. No, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to have a great, but we're going to have a semantic tug of war But you've seen, Nick, no, 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 in, I, the I, past, yeah. in the past, liberals believed in genuinely in individual liberty. Now they want to ban everything. You're talking about sort of Manchester, um, sort of 19th century Manchester liberalism. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. OK, well, um, can, can I just... Um, um, you mentioned you started by making the point, a perfectly yep. valid one, about in terms of the politics of anger, you've been subject to as much anger as, yeah. you, as you arguably have generated yourself. I mean, I, you know, I don't talk about this that much, and, and neither do you, but it's it's tough on families. It's very tough on families. You've got someone oh. in your family who's who's, uh, you know, being sort of torn limb from limb. I mean, I, and you might not want to say very much, but has it been difficult for your for your, you know, your your kids and stuff? Well, of course, because look, you know. The position that I took from that morning on the train when I disagreed with the consensus view on the, on the exchange rate mechanism, I have taken an anti-establishment position. And when you take on the establishment and you threaten the status quo, they don't exactly walk out with a tray of gin and tonics for you. No. You know, they make life very, very tough. I mean, you've seen a little bit of it on sort of drugs, for example, where you've taken a very different view. Uh, I've seen a lot of it, actually, funny enough, by just forming a coalition, which the know. establishment hates. By the way, but anyway, yes. let's, let's not get let's not yes. go on that. For yes, me. although they've worked rather well for Germany since 1945. No, no, here they hate it. But here they loathe it. Because the two parties. So I yeah. took on the establishment, and so they necessarily, uh, I mean, rather than going for the ball, they go for the man. Uh-huh. But when it really changed was when in 2004, it seemed obvious to me that UKIP had to move from being a party that talked about constitutional issues, democratic issues, issues of sovereignty. We had to embrace the immigration 
debate. And on the day that you and I were both elected together to the European Parliament... 2005? No, 1999. 1999, sorry. 1999, same day. Yep. And, you know, on all my literature in 99 the word immigration didn't appear once because it wasn't an issue. But it became an issue when we let in eight, then ten former communist countries very much poorer than we are. So when I took on... Just, the, just on that, I yeah. mentioned what your views. Do you think if the then Labour government had not opened the British labour market before other equivalent-sized economies did in 2004, the, pol- the subsequent politics of European immigration would have been very different? I remember walking out of the chamber that morning uh, in early 2004 when we were asked as MEPs to vote to sort of give the final tick on the accession of, of eight former communist countries... And there were just three British MEPs that voted against, and they were from UKIP. And I said to the other two fellows with me, that's the best day's work we've ever done in our lives. Because it was obvious to me that there was going to be a huge, uncontrolled migratory flow. Now, the problem was this, that in many ways, the Powell speech of 68, the so-called Rivers of Blood speech of 68, had almost made it impossible to discuss immigration in a grown-up context. In fact, really, immigration and criticism of it had become the preserve of the National Front or the British National Party. And nobody in mainstream politics would dare to touch upon the issue. So I knew that by taking on this subject mm. that life was going to get very tough. Mm. What I didn't know is just how nasty mm. it would be. Do, do, Nigel, I, I, just because I think we're going to return to some of these themes. Can I just, just ask you, though, just to, because I think at this, this stage of this conversation, I'm quite interested about... How you and your sort of family have sort of felt about, about all of it. I mean, actually, by the way, I've just suddenly occurred to me. I mean, both of our families have, your kids have British dad, mind you, as well, mm. European mum. Mm. Would you say your kids feel as European as they do British? Do that, I mean. No. 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 I don't, no, no, they and don't. Do they speak different languages? Oh, look, I mean, they're both, you know, they, 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 they both speak perfect German. And do they, like my kids have got Spanish and British passports. Do they have German and British passports? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and, 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 and that link to the German side of their family is clearly important to them, but their identity, if it comes to a football game, it's pretty clear which side they're actually yeah, yeah. going to support. Their mum may not, um, but, yeah. you, you know, that's pretty clear. Just before we move on to the next bit, so this is about anger. You have used people's perhaps legitimate anger about the status quo very effectively, that's what... I mean, how well, can I put this? What, well, what, what would Nigel Farage be without anger? Did you, did you but use I don't, anger? But, but, did you riot anger? Did you provoke anger? Did you, no, look, no, so no, tell no, me, no, tell no, me about no, your no, attitude towards anger is in politics. I've used humour a lot too. I mean, look at the stuff I've done in the European Parliament. Yeah, but it's, not, it's not, designed not, yeah. to make people smile as much as anything else. It's also designed to make. I mean, you know, when you've said <clears> things about, I don't know, women are married, women are worth working, women are worth less in the workplace, all this kind of stuff. I mean, if you said now, things which are deeply but, provocative, but, but, but again, you see, I mean, what a ludicrous situation. There I was speaking at a breakfast of city men and women, and I said, the problem is in a game like this, if you're an insurance broker. If you, take a, if you take a year off on maternity leave, the day you come back to that desk, you're worth far less than you were. But what I mean, what interests, what interests me, because you, you, we've, you will have had endless conversations with journalists saying to you, you've said this, you've said that. Of course. Is, and you're basically now saying, no, it's all very reasonable, and I was at a breakfast, and actually I'm a terribly reasonable chat, and sitting here you seem terribly... Of course. Terribly, no, no, absolutely. Of course. No, but, but the thing is, uh, <laughs> it, it, it stretches a little bit of credibility to suggest that when you say that, well, I don't know, when you... Um, around that, the Cologne attacks, when you sort of suggested somehow... Well, you be guys more, didn't be more about it. No, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. That might be one you thing. You guys wanted to brush it all under the carpet, pretend it wasn't happening. But, but, all a bit too difficult, wasn't it, for the political elite to admit they'd made a catastrophic mistake. But, Nigel, to say, as I think you did at the time, you say, look, there is more likely 
likely that people are going to be more raped in this country if we don't leave the European Union. You, ca- I mean, to, to say, oh, but that was a reason. I was at breakfast, or I was. Uh, I didn't say that actually, but 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 what I did say was we'd make ourselves much safer from terrorism and other kinds of attacks if we controlled our borders in a much more rigorous way than before, and I'd stand by that right now. Well, we'll come to it later, because we're now going to, we're not going to control the borders at all, but we'll come to that in a minute. Well, now, I'm aware of that, which, <laughs> no, no, which, no, which, which, by the way, does make me angry. No, no, well, that, 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 no, and actually, and that's, in a sense, the next, uh, the next bit that I'll come to in a minute. is, is where well, I, I, I want to say this to you. I have not... My politics has not been based on anger, but it's been based on frustration. And the people that I've reached out to, you know, I mean, don't forget, we've taken UKIP from naught to winning a national election in 2014. All right. Now, the perception is that the UKIP voter is very red faced, very angry, screams and shouts a lot. And actually, were they just voting UKIP as a protest? And that was said again and again and again. It's a protest vote. Even in 14, when you polled people who'd voted UKIP, they said, oh, no, 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 we're not protesting. We're voting UKIP because we believe in what they're saying. So there was always a lot more positivity to the movement than anyone's ever given credit for. Mm-hmm. No, no, I mean, look, I don't, I don't dispute that there are... I mean, I, I, I found this in my then constituency before I was rudely spat out last year. I met, I met <laughs> scores, hundreds, maybe thousands of really decent, good people who voted Brexit for perfectly, from their point of view... You know, legitimate yeah. reason. I may have disagreed with them. So I'm not. I. I. I, I hope I've never sort of you know, wanting change, wanting change, yes. and anger. Well, we'll come to that in the next. I think, I think the great the difficulty thing. is that saying you're against the status quo mm-hmm. is quite different to building a new future, which we'll come to next. But before we get to, onto that, can I just um, ask you a question? I'm asking all my guests, yep. which is, who would you like to be stuck in a lift with, and why? Blair. Blair, I, do you know the what? I, 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 I not, the, love... the, not the policeman. No, no, no. Not, no, not Lionel Blair, right? No, no, what is it? No. <laughs> Tony Blair. I'd love 90 minutes with Blair. It seems to me that he I'm sure that can be and, Cam- I'm sure and can be... Campbell, <laughs> yeah, he and Campbell and Mandelson are just not prepared to admit at any point they got anything wrong in that 10 years when they ran the country. And in particular... What I want to, I mean, obviously Iraq's an obvious one that, that, that we could talk about, but in particular what I'd like to talk about is does he not understand what open-door immigration has done to communities, has done to people's sense of belonging with each other, has done to people's wages, has done to their ability to get a GP appointment, has done, frankly, on the amount of time it takes to drive the kids to school. I'd love to... To, to, to drill down as, and, and, and to find out whether somewhere inside that tough Blair mm. shell, he, there is a little bit of remorse about what he did. OK, so we need to go away and find a lift somewhere where we can lock what, you and Tony Blair. Into, we, as long as there are little cameras on the wall, which can... Uh, <laughs> On-the-wall documentary of this. I, I mean, he'd be horrified. I, 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 without, <laughs> without in any way wishing to intervene, I suspect you'll turn down this <laughs> But just, just on that, but, but not to try and be Blair in this situation, I mean, of course, one of the things I suspect they would say is, firstly, there's very little evidence that it's had that depressing effect on wages, but crucially... It, very interestingly, in the referendum, as you'll know, with the exception of parts of Lincolnshire and the, and the sort of fruit and vegetable picking parts of the east of England, overwhelmingly, the areas with the lowest levels of immigration voted in the highest numbers for Brexit, and the areas like London, where there were the highest levels of immigration, voted the lowest. So it, it, it just isn't true to say that there was a direct, because it's just demonstrably not the case, that there's a direct link between you know, there is something the presence called, of people I mean, in a 
You because guys, you, cause you've just said you don't understand how... You guys look at things in terms of GDP numbers <laughs> and what Goldman Sachs say. Uh, but there's something called community. And when people see... When people see... But where they, but, when people see, for example... I mean, if you lived in Essex, right, and you were driving into London, and you saw what had happened in many parts of East London, where, there, where in areas it is unrecognisable now as being a British city... You say to yourself, mm. we, don't, we do not want yeah, that I do want to interrupt. To I've, I've heard you say this before. But my point is a slightly more specific one, which is that I think something that you guys struggle to explain, which is, which is why in those communities where the reality rather than the allegational perception of large numbers of people from elsewhere yeah. living in their midst, actually the reaction overwhelmingly, not everywhere, overwhelmingly has been to vote yeah, but for... Because there are fewer of them to vote. Just look at the numbers. No. no there, there are fewer of them to vote. Let's, let's not have you a psychological debate. You're listening to Anger Management with Nick Clegg, talking to Nigel Farage. Nigel, I now want to bring us up to up to date, to, to now. Um, so the country was, in on the 23rd of June 2016, pretty evenly divided. It was a very sort of knife-edge vote in the end. I just want to talk to you a little what, bit. One, not so, what, 1.6 million is knife-edge, is it? Well, wait, what was it? 650,000 voters make the difference. Anyway, let, let's, let's come to that in a minute. Um, you've got millions of people expecting... Uh, great things from Brexit mm. and millions of people who are lamenting Brexit. And I just want to ask you a little bit, not so much about your views, but what what do we now do going forward as a democracy with such kind of polarised emotions? I mean, firstly, on the losers, those who voted remain, right? 16.1 million people is more than have ever voted for a winning government. So this is a huge number of people. And by the way, the vast majority of young people particularly have voted differently. Which is bizarre, isn't well, it? Well, hang on. I don't think it is, but let's, 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 let's just... What I want to know from people like you is because when I hear you say, Theresa the appease, and I don't mm. like this Brexit, I want it harder, and I want it faster, and I want it purer, is surely one of the basic functions of a mature democracy is that losers are not left empty-handed. Their nose is not rubbed in it. What do you say to those millions, and particularly those youngsters who have to live with the consequences of Brexit, good or bad, what, surely something, the, the, with victory comes responsibility. So where, well, what responsibility do you have towards the I, losers? I think what's really interesting is that you would get an impression of how the country feels with a year to go on Brexit from London uh, that is very different to the rest of the country. There is a very significant chunk of people who voted Remain. And I, I, goodness knows how many, Nick, I've spoken to. Well, Nigel, my heart was with you, but I voted Remain because I've got a new business. I've got a mortgage. They were actually scared, uh, you know, of all of this Project Fear stuff. A lot of them are saying now, actually, do you know what? I don't have those concerns anymore. There are also people out there called Democrats who voted Remain and respect the result. So, actually, how big... How big is the group of people who are still genuinely upset and angry about Brexit? It may be 20%, but I tell you something, Nick, it isn't much bigger than that. So I feel there has been, actually, in the country, a bit of a coming together, an acceptance that we've done this, let's jolly well get on with it. Now, onto your point about young people. You know, Chuck Ramona said the other day that we'd stolen uh, people's future from them. Well, I very much hope we have, because this European Union is becoming author authoritarian, very dangerous... 
You've really got to look at what's happening in Catalonia and the way the European Union has responded to it to realise that whatever the dream of this European project may have been 40 years ago, it's moved a very long way from yeah. it. Can, can, we, can we just, because uh, you're very good at the high horse stuff about how the European Union is ghastly, I just want to just focus a bit on this, on the people. So, oh. we, I mean, we can make claim and counter so claim about whether people have shifted. The, on the young people, listen, yeah. you, you and others have said we are leaving because that is the democratic choice. Mm -hmm. On young people, it is not the democratic choice that they made, right? I mean, estimates vary a bit, but, but yeah. the turnout was relatively high for 18 to 24-year-olds by historical standards, over 60%. And over 70% of those are estimated to have voted to remain. There is no, in, in my experience, you tell me you're a historian or you have a great interest in history, I don't know of any other mature democracy that takes such an abrupt and radical decision about its future against the explicit stated wishes of those who have to inhabit the future. I, to say to them, well, they're, well, they're kind of they're getting over it. They're reconciled. It's not really a good answer. It's, it's, it's very it's odd, democratically. It's isn't very it? very odd because across the rest of Europe, what is happening? It's the youth who are rebelling. Oh, I know, but that's not what happened. No, 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 no. I mean, you may I, not like it, no, but no, that's not on, what happened. But this is really interesting, isn't it? Had we, as you wished, joined the euro, it would have been the youth yeah, no, that had taken Nigel, this. I'm talking about now, right? right? Let's not talk but about all across Europe. The under thirties are rebelling against the European yeah, Union. They did government. Hear. My point is that, and I don't think they. Frankly, I think there is a total failure in our education system at both secondary and at university level. <laughs> Nigel, we are not hear teaching, yourself speak. We you are sound not like the establishment people. you criticise We it. are not teaching people critical thinking but, anymore. We're teaching people this is the right point of view and anybody Nigel, that holds an alternative point of view is a bad person. Nigel, I really genuinely didn't expect this of you. You are now literally sounding like the establishment you criticise. You don't l appear to either like or accept the reality. No, I know why. Oh, hang, on, hang on, hang on. You're saying it's because of education or they're not doing what other young people do in other parts of Europe. They did. The overwhelming majority of young people, and by the way, in as much as cephalogical evidence is worth anything, suggests yeah. suggest that young people still fiercely believe that this is the wrong future being imposed upon them. You can't wish it away and say our education's wrong or they should behave like young people elsewhere. They didn't. You have said, others have said, we're doing this as an act of democracy. Yep. I think it is profoundly undemocratic to do something which is so against the will of those who have to live with the consequences well, well, of it. Well, well, a country is made up of different regions, sure. of different people, um, and it was a collective vote. I'm, I mean, I'm astonished. What do you say to the young people? I'm astonished. I'm astonished that the young people look upon the European Union as being this bright, <laughs> shiny Nigel, future. You said you're astonished. And, That's and not the point. They do, OK? You have to but, just kind but, of get but, over that. But, Nick, they will change their minds. Ah. They will change their minds. You sound like every inch... The establishment politician. They will, no. they will find out they're wrong eventually, you see, because what, I say you so. See, what you can't see is that the European project is disintegrating before our eyes. It's happening. Nigel, I've heard this for 40 years. Well, the East-West split, if you look at the, the fight going on with Hungary and Poland and the Commission, if you look at what the Euro has done to Greece. So I'm confident, I'm confident hmm. uh, that you're, reality... You're they'll grow up and they'll agree with you eventually. I think they will change their minds. Right. And, and, you know, all, just all a few weeks ago we had the Italian elections. Fascinating that 62% of under-30s voted for very rebellious political parties. Yeah, yeah. but Nigel, look, we'll move on to the... Other side of the equation, which is those who now expect great things from Brexit. I only point out to you that the language you're using now is identical to the established no. language. No, it is, because you're basically saying they voted a particular way. Yep. I don't understand it. I'm astonished, and they're wrong, and they'll see their mistake I eventually. It. I accept it. And we, <laughs> and we've how got undemocratic a, and can we've you got be? A, and we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do. I mean, fr quite frankly, if we re-ran that referendum, and I pray we don't, if we re-ran the referendum, the Leave side should do it completely differently. We just need coach loads of students coming from all over Europe, going round our universities. Can I just ask about the other side of the equation then? So you've got now, so we've had, talked about the 16.1 million, and particularly the youngsters. The, 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 I mean, one of the things that I think was masterful on behalf of the pro-Brexit campaign and the referendum was in a sense 
you and you and Johnson and Gove and Kate Howe, you could all basically say you were for the same thing, but not actually explain that you meant different things by Brexit. One way or another, lots of people have very raised expectations about what Brexit's going to bring, right? Uh, some of the stuff is obvious, 350 million for the NHS, which you say you didn't. But anyway, that's what a lot of people think. No, I've what, ha- what, happen- that, what happens but... when they don't get the utopia? Brexit's about one thing and one thing only that united all of us. It's about independence. And I care about this, having led the UK Independence Party for all those years. This is about, this is about the United Kingdom becoming a normal country once again, rather like 200 other countries that exist in the world. It's about us making our own decisions. It does not stop us for one moment cooperating very closely with, Euro- with European no, 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 countries or I, elsewhere. Can I just press you a bit? So, 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 what about the expectations which have been raised? And what happened? Because, you see, I have, a, well, I, have a, I have a view. People say to folk like me, they say, you are risking a great backlash of anger if you seek to give oh, people yes. another say. Hang on a minute. I personally think, well, obviously disagree on this, is that the real backlash which is being risked now is that these utopian promises have been made to millions of people. They're clearly not going to be delivered. We're going to abide by European Court of Justice rulings. We're paying money no, no, to no, the no, European no, but, Union. But that's because of the government. No, no, but, but Nigel, that's so, what's so, going to so, happen. So the anger, actually, if there's anger out there today, Brian, if there's anger from Brexit voters out there today, it's actually as much against Theresa May and the way that she's doing Brexit. Yeah, but that's because but that, but you can comfort yourself by claiming that if you were in charge, your pure, unadulterated, uncompromising version of Brexit would happen. What, life doesn't work like that. You Do always you know, have to compromise with reality. You know, no one can impose their particular... Ultimately, ultimately there, is, there is one big thing here, isn't there? And that's March 29th next year. Now, let's be honest. Whatever kind of Brexit we get, and it is likely, with Mrs May in charge, that I'm going to be deeply frustrated by you know, the lack Foreign of, fishermen will keep their quotas well, in well, our waters. I mean, things like that, which are yeah. just outrageous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we no, don't pay money I to mean, the... Can to you the imagine... I know, but Nigel, can that's you what's going to happen. Nick, so can, what happens to the voters? Can you imagine any other country in the world willingly giving away its fishing rights? I can't. Yeah. I can't think of one that would do it. Anywhere in the world. Anywhere. So I'm going to have my frustrations. But here's the big thing. If we leave the Treaty of Rome at midnight... On March the 29th next year, UK time. we will then be, we will then be an independent yeah. so, nation. So, so, Nigel, my question to you is not so much about what <coughs> you think happens on 11 p.m. on the 29th of March 2019. My question, well, we is, is, it, my question is a slightly, if I may, if I may say, so, a slightly bigger one, which goes way beyond you or me or, or even the politician, the political classes. Millions of people voted in frustration or anger, whatever you want to describe it, with the status quo. With I remember, the, by the way, parenthetically, I spent all the referendum campaign, I played no role nationally, in South Yorkshire. After immigration, which did come up a lot on the doorstep, guess what the biggest single reason was that I was given why people were voting Brexit? Because they were fed up that Sheffield was constantly being told what to do by London. So they were voting against Brussels to point, you know, score a point against London. Setting that aside, expectations have been raised. And my worry, and I want to just understand whether you share that worry, is that as people condemn Theresa May or the government or whoever, that that Brexit isn't the great sort of cornucopia of goodies that they thought it was, where does the anger go then? Where does the rage go then? My worry is it'll just go, you know, it will just go from one set of disappointed expectations to the next. The anger will come if the establishment do frustrate the referendum result and do attempt to make us vote again. Now, we've seen this, of course, in Denmark. We've seen it twice in Ireland. And that's where the anger would be. Look... Nick, the big picture is the 29th of March next year. Because that, you know, if we leave the Treaty of Rome at the end of that day... It's not really, that, Nigel, if we, if That, we, if in 100 years' time, 
is all the history but of Nigel, If Spanish about. trawlers still scoop up fish off the Cornish but once coast, we're a if, sovereign if, if, if nation, European Court of Justice judges but once still we're a sovereign nation, if we still pay forty billion, I think you're missing, decades the, ahead. I think you're missing the point. Well, no, I, once we've left the Treaty of Rome, even if the current weak need government have signed up unnecessarily to a whole load of stuff they didn't need to, as a free nation. We will able we will be able to have free general elections where everything can be debated and decided can, by can British on, government. On this idea of a f- totally free sovereign country, um, isn't the reality that has always been obscured um, that actually there's no such thing as a completely self-governing country? I mean, you know, we have willingly forget the European Union for a moment, forget Brussels and all the stuff that you, you know you, you've, you've in a sense for, as a lifetime railed against. NATO, for heaven's sake, Article 5. Talk about a sacrifice of sovereignty. We yes. have to send our boys and girls to in harm's way there to protect a, distant countries. These are completely... The WTO... These the, are the, different models, Nick. These oh, no, no, are, no, no, hang on. There are models across the world, and you just mentioned two, there are models where sovereign nations agree to work together. The point about the European process, that's about sovereign nations giving away decision-making ability to an unelected body at the centre. They are two completely different things. Well, I would argue they're not. But now, listen. Can I just? You, you said something just earlier, which made my ears sort of prick up a bit. You said the establishment, this, that, and the other. Um, no, you're going to hate this, but you've got to accept, Nigel. You are now part of the Brexit establishment that runs this country. I am. No, 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 no. Here you go. Here you go. Boom, boom, I never finally, finally got to run. I know you hate to hate to be. I've just heard the most establishment answer earlier about young people that I could possibly. Hang on, let me explain. Let me explain. You. Paul Dacre, the hedge fund managers, Rupert Murdoch, all those, all those, and by the way, they are tend to be men of a certain age, very, very wealthy. Many of them, by the way, unlike you, don't even live or pay tax here. You are, whether you like it or not, you, of course you have differences with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, but you've won. And you know, I'm now outside the establishment. Boy, am I outside the establishment. You guys have won. What I, or I think, personally, I find a little bit unsatisfactory is that You've won, you have the responsibility of victory, and now you're rushing to say, ah, but the victory's nothing to do with me, Gov, uh, and how it's being applied is nothing to do with me, Gov. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you win in a democracy and you're on the winning side, you have to kind of take some responsibility for that rather than pretending something is nothing to do with it. I mean, no, no, look, how, I, how long can you be anti-establishment when you're part of the establishment? Uh, well, I'm not part of the establishment. You are. Um, I'm <laughs> so far from the establishment. If I was part of it... Do you know something? Public Nick? school, do, do, city... Do you know something? After 20, years, after 20 years working in business and then getting into politics, you would have thought, would you not that if I was part of the establishment, this government would actually have used me in some constructive way. Now, I may not have been the right person to, to, to be involved with renegotiations in Brussels, and I accept that. I'm not particularly popular up at the European Commission. But you would, if I was part of the establishment, if I had been accepted by the establishment, they would have sent me to Trump. They would have sent me to America to do something there, because frankly, our ambassador and the president can't even speak to each other. But they haven't chosen to do so. So I, do you know something? I don't think I'll ever be an accepted part of the establishment. But I don't really care. Mm. It doesn't really bother me as long as we leave. As long as we leave that treaty. At the end of next March, that's the thing that matters. Isn't the truth that, because I, I mean, I've obviously watched you, debated with you, you, you bested me on, on two um, notable occasions into it. I mean, you're obviously a highly skilled debater, but you, you're, you're, I get the impression that actually look at you now, you're like sort of Loki. You know Loki, the the, the god of chaos in the, in the Marvel films, the the, the evil yeah. brother of uh, of Thor, I think it is. You, you you're a brilliant harbinger of kind of mischief and and chaos. And you're not actually comfortable with the idea that you might actually act, actually have to kind of 
Well, as take I responsibility say, for doing stuff. As I say, if this government Do, does Loki, Loki Farage, does if that sit? This government does that sit well with you? Oh, look, I like a bit of chaos. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, no bones there you go. That. The, Loki, the but, inner Loki's coming but, out. But if this government had asked me to take on any responsible position for them, whether it's in Europe or America, I would gladly have done so. They haven't asked, and you know what? They'll never ask. It's not going to be Sir Nigel, Sir Nick. Well, yeah, but by the way, I very happily swapped my knighthood <laughs> for, for having another vote on Brexit. If well, you, we you are. Very we happily. Are. Very we happy. are where we are. No, Nigel, just a few, two, two or three more questions, if I, if, if I may. Um, first, this is quite a substantive one, but it's, I think it goes to the heart of some of what we've talked about. Uh, actually goes right back to your experience in the commodities markets where you sort of said you saw a kind of global economy which mm. you felt was being stifled by uh, European red tape and so on. Um, you, I've read before, you know, you're a keen student of history. Actually, over history, the single biggest cause for why two economies trade with each other is not technology, is not what you saw on your screens or your paperwork in the city at the, at the time in the 80s. It's geography. You know, there's a reason why we, why, we nego- why we trade more with Little Island of four million people or so than we do with giants like India and China. It's the reason why Canada and Mexico will always trade more with America. I mean, as you know, academics have estimated roughly that for every mile of distance you double between two economies, you halve the amount of trade between them. And, as you know, the government itself says even if you have a all-singing, all-dancing new um, uh, trade agreement with your mate uh, Donald Trump, it will only add about 0.2% of you know, to British GDP. So can I just press you on this? I think it's very seductive. I hear it all the time across the country. People love this idea of global Britain, swashbuckling, buccaneering Britain. It's slightly inconsistent with some of the reactions of people like you about having a French uh, company print blue uh, passport covers. But isn't this basically a profoundly misleading proposition that there's this cornucopia of new trade deals on the other side of the planet which can replace what we lose in our own neck of the woods. I think that the world is changing. I think historically what you've just said is right. But I think the world is changing. And I think so much more... Is it really? Yeah, I do think so, actually. So much more. So much more of what we do in terms of business now is at the press of a button that the world has become an incredibly small place in terms of business. Um, and, And you say what we're going to lose. You know, the worst case scenario is that the European Commission uh, do not follow economic logic and decide we're going to have some form of tariff regime. All right, That is the worst-case scenario. I don't think it will, by the way. Uh, well, I, in the end, I think BMW and the others will force them into no, saying... No, no, they've said so be, already, by the let's way. Let's be grown so let's up, not, you know. There's no plot. They've said so already there won't be any tariffs. Let's be grown up about this. But, it, but the worst-case scenario is that we did face some form of tariff. Do you know, on most manufactured goods, the level of that tariff is less than the weekly fluctuation of the currency. But as you said to so me earlier, I'm not, not worried about it. I'm not, Nick, I'm, 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 yeah. I am really not worried about it. But Nigel, tariffs, and, as you know, are on physical goods. You've rightly said earlier yeah. in the same sentence that actually what we trade very well on services. Com- is services. And that, as you know, is where we are heavily well, dependent on, on nearby markets. But the honest truth is, no, even that's not true, Nick. Well, and, actually, and actually, the European single market, 30 years on, there are still many retail products in financial services that we're banned from selling in France and Germany. So, I, 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 look, I, I take Nigel, the view. why is it I that take we trade more with Ireland than we do with huge economic superpowers on the other side of the planet. I'm, well, I, you're right. We've actually we've actually been very misguided over the course of the last couple of decades. Let's stop the Germans in terms of much our, more with in terms, in terms of our in terms of our. Th- there seems to have been in corporate Britain a complete obsession with the European project. I hope Brexit. I believe Brexit will break that. No, look, I'm very optimistic about the future um, in terms of our position in the world. And again, taking a long historical view on this, you know, the eurozone now 
is about 15, 17% of global GDP. It's no more than that. And it, and it declines roughly by 1% mm. with every year that goes by. Fast forward 10 or 15 years from now, and you'll find the European Union actually is less than 10% no, of I global GDP. I keep hearing GDP. this. The, 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 the point, so the so let's to, think bigger. Yes, let's no, think no, no, bigger. No, no, no. These, these, if I may say so, these sort of, and they are slightly sort of platitudinous now, these things about think bigger and optimistic, mm. what they can't do is abolish geography. There's a tectonic and geological reason why we are a European economy. Well, we're because we're looking, Nick, but, but, this, Nick, I, but you, Nick, well, you're going to go on doing... I mean, but Nigel, well, you've asserted... Whenever in history, whenever in history have you had to have political union to buy and sell widgets from each other? It's nonsense. No, I agree with that. It's but, nonsense. E- but equally, we don't, we don't send gunboats now to sort of far <laughs> distant countries to get them to sort of open their markets to us. It's a much more... It's a wholly different world. I agree with that. But one, oddly enough, where geography still plays... Uh, uh, I think a determining role on why and how economies well, trade. I, 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 well, we, we will see. We will I, disagree I think, on I, that. I think the I think the wish to sort of wish away geography is one of the greatest um, uh, delusions. I think in the present day, but we will see. We will see. No, two final questions. Um, was the past a better place? I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> Great answer. No, but you know what I mean. What, do do you do you sort of because you talked particularly when you talked about your Damascene conversion on that train up from Kent yeah. to the ERM? You can talk as if something we lost something which we had in the past. Is that your view? You think we should be going back to something? Which well, is- I think. I mean, if, I think in 1945, you know, one country lost World War Two, and it was us. We were the losers. You know, we were the ones who lost everything. We were bankrupted. Um, our big imperial possessions started to disappear. We had a massive crisis of confidence as a nation that went on all through the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and, and so, no, actually, I think in many ways... I'm very bullish about Britain, as it is right now. Yeah, we've got our problems, we've got our divisions, we've always had them. Uh, but I actually think that there is a great feeling, a great national spirit out there. Uh, We kind of, we've changed. You know, when you and I grew up, we accepted losing. We kind of wanted to do badly at the Olympics. But I never accepted it. But but you know what I mean? Speak for yourself. But we we kind of accepted (laughs) failure. Um, No, no, no. And now, actually, as a nation, we want to be successful. So I think there are some very positive, good things to look forward to. And then finally... um, you famously said, I think, on the eve of the result of the referendum being announced, that if it was fifty-two forty-eight the other way, in no. other words, uh, no, I said, I said, if it's fifty-two forty-eight to remain, the battle goes on. There will be irreconcilable voices yeah, yeah. within the Conservative Party who will battle on. But I said, I doubt the establishment would give yeah. us another try no, no, at but, this for twenty-five but, but what, years. But what would you recommend to people who have very narrowly lost? Feel that a lot of. Uh, false claims being made about Brexit bring about. Do you recommend they just go go quietly, or do you not think there is a perfectly coherent case, which you, in a different, from a different point of view, used to make, that the British people should have the final say on how we leave the European Union? It shouldn't be the political class. I... Isn't, isn't the true anti-establishment thing in keeping with your? your own sort of ethos as, an, as a self-proclaimed anti-establishment politician, that it should be the people and not the politicians who have the final yeah, say and on the how people, we leave. Yeah, and the people don't want a second referendum. There's absolutely no... They don't want a second referendum. A first no, referendum on the terms of our is, departure. Yeah, and what happens then? And what happens then? I mean, they, I they, 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 they decide. I, I, do you know what, Nick? I, I 
for the first time. I was time, delighted when you heard for, when, for when I heard you say now. you agreeing with me that we should. For the, well, I never. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want a second referendum. <laughs> well, no, you don't want it. But I've always feared because you're what... like the Brexit establishment. Now that you've no, no, that no, you've no, now, no. now now that you've narrowly won the first hurdle, you don't want to you don't want to risk the British people having. Another I have say. to tell you, I think you're whistling in the wind now. No, no, no. I think it's going to happen, and I, I, I now think yeah. we will leave no, on March the Nigel, you may be right. And you know what? We can have these debates. We can have these debates for years to come about how we manage our economy, how close we are to the European Union. The big, the big thing is leaving the Treaty yeah. of Rome. Do you know something? It's going to happen. No, no, my, my Nigel, you, you may be right. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. And I think it is more likely. I will continue to fight until the uh, end mm-hmm. minute to give the brief. My, my question is a, is a subtly different one. It's, a, again, about your, un, your belief in democracy and your, your, your views as an anti-establishment politician. In the same way, I'm very struck by what I think is a very establishment response to the sentiment of young people. I'm very struck that you, as an anti-establishment politician, is basically now saying, notwithstanding the fact that John Redwood... David Davis and others have always claimed that the British people should sort of bookend the whole process, take the decision to leave in the first place, but also be sovereign in taking the decision how we leave. I just find it, to put it politely, sort of intellectually g- gymnastic now to somehow say the British people can't have a say. But the, the demand's fact. not there. It's just not there. Yeah. I'm not, do, you, do you think the demand was overwhelmingly there in the first place? Oh, yes, absolutely. No question about that. Because I was, I was an MP for 12 years, and I was <coughs> quite an assiduous... Well, obviously, obviously not assiduous enough, because I lost my seat. But I used to knock on doors every single week for over a decade. I can probably count on the fingers of two hands the number of times people said, you know, the thing that worries me much more than the NHS or apprenticeships or crime down the street or the pothole at the end of this lane... Is our membership of the European Union? Well, how can you how can you separate the NHS from membership of the European Union? How can you separate the NHS from, from a country whose population is rising by half a million every year? Our public services it simply can't cope with the numbers. These things were related. You chose not to see them. I think there was. But isn't the reverse now? This is my, my point. My final well, point. Was, I, know, I know you won't accept. If but it can, was, but can I put Nick, it to you? Nick, if it was, if there was a genuine yeah. desire out there in the country to have another vote on the final deal or whatever it may be, I'd say, fine, let's have it. But it's yeah. not there. But, but Nigel, can I, just, can I just put to you, so you've just quite, quite rightly mentioned that there are connections between all these things. There is, for instance, now very, very clear evidence that where, whereas at the time of the referendum, people felt leaving the European Union was broadly good for the NHS, that's almost gone into complete reverse now. It's almost exactly the same majority now of people who feel it's bad for the NHS. So the world has changed since the summer of 2016. It, it just, you know, I guess what I want know, to put you, to you is, but, but since when has a vote become a... At what point does it become a tablet of stone that is immutable? Do you just, do you just feel that in a democracy... Well, you had 40 years with your referendum. <laughs> um, you know, give us five... Give us 40 or, years. I tell you what, give us five or ten with us <laughs> right, and we'll try right. again, all right? Very good. A very good way to end. <laughs> Nigel Farage, thank, thank you. you very much thank indeed. Well, that's all we have time for, and thank you very much for listening. The next show is in two weeks' time. If you enjoyed this show, then please do subscribe via Apple Podcasts. Just search for Anger Management with Nick Clegg. And if you'd like to give us a star rating and review uh, on Apple Podcasts, that would be more than welcome. We're also on Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and all major podcast providers. If you're uh, one of those Apple deniers, you can download it at audioboom.com slash channel slash Nick Clegg. And please do follow me on Twitter at Nick underscore Clegg and let us know what you thought of this episode and anyone indeed who you think we should have on the show in the future. Finally, I'd like to extend a special invitation to someone I'd really like to see on this show. We've just had... um, uh, Nigel Farage, the, the Loki, the god of, of mischief. I'd like to now invite 
the god of rage onto our show, Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail. It can't be much fun spending all day coming up with reasons to make the country angrier. So, Mr Dacre, if you're listening, please do come, and we'd love to see you here in a fortnight. Audio production is by Sophie Black, and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Anger Management with Nick Clegg is a Podmasters production.